Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, John Eversall, and I am delighted to be joined by Daniel Tiffany, whose latest book is My Silver Planet, A Secret History of Poetry and Kitsch. Daniel, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Thank you, John. I'm, I'm really happy to be talking with you. Well, it's great having you. Let me get right to it. What is Kitsch? And maybe get into how it was viewed by 20th century modernist critics, somebody like a Clement Greenberg. Can you talk about that a little? Um, yeah, I mean, Kitsch is, I think, you know, is a, a term, an aesthetic category or term that was defined by modernists in the 20th century, and, and it was... Uh, usually, you know, it was seen as, as, you know, positioned by Clement Greenberg and, um, and, and, and others. Um, the, is, is it, uh, essay is the most famous, but, um, Herman Broek, who, um, wrote an essay that influenced a lot of people, Walter Benjamin, um, and, and other people. And it was basically defined as, as a, you know, as something that was the antithesis uh, to a kind of modernist formalism, and um, and the, the the definition, you know, the discussions of it and the, the definitions were really um, hostile and um, uh, um, contemptuous. Um, and they, you know, they they associated it um, with, on the one hand, with uh, with romanticism or, um, uh, in other words, with something that preceded industrial um, production, and then on the other hand, uh, associating it with um, sort of modern industrial forms of, of, of production and reproduction. So there was a kind of um, confusion about what its origins were um, from the beginning, and, and, and even what it was, it was often confused with camp, and so, um, um, but in any case, uh, you know, they, they for us, you know, the way most people think of, of Kitsch, it's associated with material culture, with yes. things and little tchotchkes and furnishings and and um, and so one of the, I guess the thing that really motivated the book was um, noticing um, as I was reading these essays by various uh, modernists that were written mostly in the uh, 20s and 30s. Um, there were a number of people, including Benjamin and Adorno, in the in the Frankfurt School, and then Herman Brook and Clement Greenberg. Um, and I noted, I began to notice that they all mentioned poetry um, as an important source for Kitsch. Yes. But that, yeah, but that poetry seemed to have, in most people's minds, and in the discussion, discussions about Kitsch, say, in the 60s, when the, the idea was revived in ways, um, that there was no mention of poetry at all, and I, I thought that was kind of odd. So, um, you know, so that's where I... Um, that, that's that, that's sort of a very sketchy sort of history of the, of the term and, yeah. and where it came from. You know, and it was associated with um, with fakery and sentimentality and yeah. triviality. Uh, it was a kind of fake art. So that that that's a kind of you know kind of working definition of it. And then you know the impetus for the book to me, which was to find out what poetic. Right. I think the book, and I think you do an amazing job of seeing how Kitsch actually kind of changes our understanding of the development of modern poetry and you particularly start focusing in on the ballad. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, you know, I, I, um, 
I mean, the first thing was that I discovered in, in starting to look at a, you know, what I call a, a poetological version of Kitsch. In other words, thinking of what Kitsch is from the perspective of poetry mm-hmm. um, was that not only that it um, it looked um, somewhat different than um, the, the formulation of Kitsch as something that solely relates to material culture or objects um, or furnishings, but that it was that it was much um, older than the, the, the kind of the, the, the discussion and the terms and the tensions that gave rise to, you know, this antithesis between modernism and kitsch. When you look at poetry, it was, it was much older um, and, uh, and, more, and idiosyncratic. Um, so, so one of the things that became very clear with the book was that the book is not an attempt to sort of assimilate Notions, uh, or, or res, you know, echo, you know, ask poetry to somehow resemble presumptions or definitions that we have about kitsch in relation to material culture, but to see, to develop a sense of what poetic kitsch and see how it alters our sense of what kitsch is, kitsch, hmm. um, defined in terms of material culture. So the, the way that I did that, the way that I sort of grounded the discussion about, um, Poetic kitsch, as opposed to kitsch in general, or kitsch as a as a as a category of material culture, was by you know it it, it, it began to uh, uh, you know be obvious to me as I as I looked um, uh, at, at early discussions of popular poetry or what was called popular poetry in the early 19th century that um, the discussion always you know circled around the question of the ballad, um, which was um, uh, you know, which which was um, essentially the um, the form of of song and vernacular poetry that um, at a certain point um, became very fashionable in in, in British literary um, culture and was um, imported into elite poetry. So uh, there there's something called the ballad revival, which um, is is the moment in British. Um, the history of British poetry when elite poets become aware of and become interested in, in ballads. And it, it begins to emerge in the early 18th century, around the 17 first decade or two of the, the 18th century. And most of the ballads came from, they were called border ballads because they came from, most of them were collected and gathered um, from the border area um, between Scotland and, and England. And almost as soon as um, those things began to appear in uh, literary journals, Addison in The Spectator had an early piece on ballads and, um, that, that had a big impact. And almost as soon as they began to appear in sort of educated elite culture, there was this, you know, tremendous kind of infatuation with them. Um, and, and at the same time, they were almost there were almost immediately scandals and and, <laughs> um, and, and questions about their authenticity and about um, about things being faked and, and the, the things that are being fraudulent versions of things or things that were completely made up. Yeah, you do it so, great. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say so that that what one of the arguments that I make is that the associations between kitsch and fakery. Mm-hmm. Or kitsch and fraudulence, or kitsch is a kind of fake art, are actually rooted in real events of um, of counterfeiting poetry and 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 faking and faking these ballads. So that the you know the the 
the sort of vague notion that kitsch is a kind of fake art is actually rooted in real, um, you know, sort of moments of literary scandal and literary fraudulence. Um, so that there's a, you know, there's a very concrete version of this kind of fakery. Um, so, so anyway, that's and the, so then there's a there's a long way in which the ballad becomes and this and especially the refrain, mm-hmm. which is the the aspect of the ballad that really becomes part of elite um, poetry that wasn't really very um, a very um, a common uh, feature in in um, uh, you know in in elite poetry and educated um, poetry. And it was the, the, the refrain was one of the features of the ballad that were brought into elite poetry through this this long process of you know of ballad imitations and things. Mm-hmm. And so so I sort of follow that all the way up through you know kind of surprising moments where Pound in the Imagist Manifesto talks about that one of the things that you should do as an Imagist is learn how to imitate ballads. Um, and Pound himself wrote you know a number of ballads. Um, in this kind of archaic. Mm-hmm. And you even you even say, I think, at one point that uh, it would be considered almost blasphemous to some by associating Pound with Kitsch. It, it would be what? Blasphemous. Yeah, I mean, you know, Pound and Imagism as the, you know, the, the, uh, the archetype of, of Anglo-American poetic modernism, you know, the, the and and yet, for all, for many of those poets in that moment, Eliot and, and H.D. and a number of other poets, their, their early work, it is, looks very much like, you know, the poetry of, of, you know, the late, you know, the fantasy of sort of decadence. And, you know, they were all struggling to sort of modernize themselves. And for Pound, it, it was clear that that was in, you know, a, a kind of an aborted kind of process that he was only able to do that successfully to a certain extent. That his own early poetry was steeped in sort of Victorian, um, you know, ballad um, imitations and a, a preoccupation with diction and translation and archaism and stuff. So that he never really, um, he never really uh, was able to expel from his <laughs> from his, you know, his poetry or poets. So it's really making an argument, at least in relation to Pound, that. To really see Pound's modernity, you know, modernism, you have to see it in conjunction with this, this, this attachment to the other kinds of this other kind of thing. Yes. Um, as you were teasing out this bridge between elite and the vernacular, you spent quite a lot of time on the Walpole and Shenstone set. Is there? Can you speak to that? Um. Yeah. The the reception of um, ballads in the 18th century, one of the most enthusiastic and um, productive responses to them, uh, and, and really the, the kind of first responders, and, and the, uh, were um, a couple of groups of uh, sort of homosocial um, friendships, uh, circles of men, uh, poets, um, that one of them um, uh, was around, centered around the poet William Shenstone, um, and the other, as you say, around um, uh, around what's his name, the um, the other figure that you mentioned. Oh, Walpole. 
yeah, local, and um, and those were the and it, it was in these circles that um, that the earliest sort of formulations of Gothic began to take shape right. before the first before the first Gothic novels. So one of the things that and and there was a and and Gothic itself is a kind of um, uh, is a kind of response to the recovery and the 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 sort of scandal surrounding certain um, counterfeit ballads um, that occurred first, um, earliest in poetry, rather than, I mean, you know, Gothic, um, the Gothic sensibility is usually associated with novels and, and with, with plays, but it actually first began to emerge in, in poetry, which is one of the aspects of it, along with melodrama, that, that feed into the kitsch um, sensibility. So and the, and these figures, um, you know, were um, both um, elevated, um, but also marginal figures because of their sexual orientation. Because of and so there's a there's an important um, kind of correlation between um, what's generally in the literature called imposture, which is both a social um, and aesthetic practice. Imposture right. was was the way that um, was the term that was used. Uh, to talk about um, these fraudulent ballads, and at the same time, there was a, a, a kind of imposture that was going on in terms of the sexual identities and the social um, profiles of the, the men in these circles who were the earliest and most passionate um, um, adherents of ballad culture. Um, Thomas Gray um, is probably the best, you know, the most um, the most famous of the poets. Yeah. You called your book My Silver Planet a secret history. Um, why Silver Planet and what makes it a secret? Um, well, you know, it's a secret because, um, poets generally, even though I think the, you know, the, the, the aesthetics of kitsch are something that have worked their way into and been embraced or turned, let's say, in visual culture mm -hmm. and kind of advanced visual culture. I mean, Warhol would be um, an example of it. Um, but, you know, poets really don't like to talk much about kitsch. I mean, you know, describing somebody's work as kitsch in <laughs> poetry is one of the worst things you could possibly say. Right. Even in, in relation to poets who consider themselves to be, you know, experimental. Right. You know, friendly, friendly to popular culture, et cetera. Um, yes. So, um, you know, so, so it was secret because people just, although it became clear to me that Poetry was essential to the, you know, the kind of formulation of Kitsch, um, that poetry had never really discussed that, that, that aspect, its role in the formulation of Kitsch, um, and also realized that, that poetry in some ways is, is implicated in the origins of this tension between popular and elite cultures in, in the context of poetry. So that the tension between elite, pop, elite and popular cultures first takes place in, in the context of poetry and specifically in a kind of struggle over control of, of the vernacular by various kinds of competing. Yeah, I think that's what makes the book so ambitious and your argument so compelling is connecting it to poetry. And speaking of, you're a poet yourself. <clears throat> Can you speak a little bit how these more scholarly ideas inform your work as a poet? Um, you know, I, I mean, my, you know, my, 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 my work as a, as a critic or a theorist tends to be 
pretty um, provocative and, and um, even perverse in certain ways. In other words, it, it pushes the limits of, of what, you know, cert, certain kinds of comfort zones about the way people want to talk about poetry. Um, and, you know, and, I, and by people, I mean poets um, and, and scholars, and but especially um, poets. And so, you know, my, my sense of my my activity as a, as a theorist is that, you know, that I find that most criticism or a lot of criticism about poetry is, is in a sense, um, not really very, I mean, you, one wouldn't describe it as, as provocative or experimental. I mean, the, the kinds of ideas that it entertains, that it, it usually stays within certain kinds of discourses, um, certain kinds of comfort zones, even though they may, you know, have the, you know, the, they may be profiled as a kind of radicalism, whether it's Marxist or other kinds of radicalism, but ideas which are really uncomfortable about poetry and uh, experiments that really involve potentially a kind of degradation of poetry or a kind of abandonment of, of um, you know, of really cherished uh, kinds of um, relationships of poetry. Um, I mean, a kind of unadulterated um, love, affection, or, or passion for it on the part of poets sort of doesn't really get pushed very far because of the, the protectiveness that many poets feel about poetry. Yeah. So, you know, I see my theory as a, as a kind of experiment in the way that poets think about experimentation in their poetry, which is to say there are lots of poets that, are, that embrace a kind of um, radicalism in their practice, but... Um, but certain ideas and questions are sort of off, you know, are sort of off the table in ways. So one of the things that, you know, that I wanted to explore was a model of, of a relationship to poetry that, that involves, you know, something like what CNI calls, you know, certain kinds of ugly feelings that, mm-hmm. that are, that our relationship to poetry is a compound of, you know, that there are certain kinds of poetry that make us deeply uncomfortable. And, you know, which end up being, let's say, a, a, they end up involving, like, Kitsch, a combination of, of disgust and pleasure or contempt and pleasure. I mean, contempt being a kind of disgust, disgust that's, that's, that's directed towards things that are seen as largely harmless, but they're still sort of disgusting. Um, so to me, it was really interesting, it, it, her notion of, of thinking about new kinds of aesthetic categories that are almost inevitably an, a compound of different kinds of aspects, where what you feel about certain kinds of art is it's, it's deeply disturbing. It's a combination of, you know, of, of pleasure and, 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 you know, the, all the, the, the things that we associate with aesthetic experience, but that it also involves uh, certain kinds of really um, negative aspects or ugly feelings. Definitely. Kitsch, Kitsch is, is one of those. And to me, you know, work that really matters, I mean, of course, like any lover of poetry, there, there are poems that I just, you know, love without any, you know, any, any reserve or, and, 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 and I, and I th- those kinds of feelings are really precious to me. And I, and I, but at the same time, the work that seems to be most affecting to me is work that I, it is really deeply disturbing. Right. And at the same time, exciting and things that I can't understand and to put me in a position where I can't resolve my responses to it. Exactly. Kitsch seems to be one of those things. So, so um, 
I feel the the the, so the secret planet how to do, you know the secrecy of it had to do with trying to engage with certain kinds of taboos, certain kinds of doors that that um, that you know often remain closed. Um, and the the planet, you know, the, the it's a phrase of Keats, so it, it comes from uh, from um, from from Keats, who is often seen as a kind of paradigm, is identified by Greenberg and others as a kind of paradigm of poetic pitch. Right. Even though one of the things that I do in the book is I make it very clear that romanticism, that the you know the foundation of pitch and poetry has to be pushed back, you know, a century into the 18th century, and that the foundations of um, even though it's, it's, a, it's an important feature of romanticism, but that, that it has to be pushed back. So on the one hand, it's about Keats, and it's also the the, the idea of silver, which is something that uh, there's this kind of thread that I developed in in the book on um, silver as a kind of substance, which yes. one can talk about in relation to Kitsch. Um, Daniel, silver. let me let me ask you, um, where were you born and raised, and how did you get involved in poetry? Um, well, I, I was born and raised in California. I grew up in the area, um, and on the peninsula. And I, I, um, I, uh, I actually, I, I was involved in the theater for a long time when I was a kid. I went to Juilliard um, mm-hmm. when I first got out of high school in New York. And then I left, um, New York and didn't finish what I was doing at Juilliard and sort of left the theater behind and, and, and moved to Europe and lived in, sort of lived and worked uh, in Paris and other places for about four years. Um, picked up some languages and then came back and went to Santa Cruz. I was a classics major. Um, studied Greek and with Norman O'Brien at Santa Cruz. So I, I um, sporadically was in and out of Santa Cruz and then finally got my degree in translation studies there. And is this um, something um, your family was uh, involved in at all? This this field of study, or is this, you just sort of fell into it? Yeah, it just you know it it, it was just like no, it, it wasn't anything. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't anything that my family wasn't cultivated or literary. Uh, it was just, I mean, part of it was a you know it was a combination of um, reading pound. Uh, my, my first critical book is on Pound, and the way that you know a lot of young poets ex- respond to his exhortations to read Greek and read Italian, and, and I, I took it fairly seriously. So, um, and then you know, living in Europe for, for quite a while, um, so it was, which was more of just traveling and working. No, that's great. You mentioned Pound. I want to return to him for a moment since you have an entire chapter on him. You talk about uh, nationalism, anti-Semitism, redundancy, triviality, irrational authority. Can you uh, say some last words on on Pound and his relationship to Kitsch? Um, well... <laughs> Uh, the, the chapter is called "Kitching the Cantos," and um, it basically, you know, picks up a thread from the the book, uh, the first critical book that I that I did, which was on Pound that, that Harvard published in 1995, which is called "Radio Corpse," which looks at Pound's early pre-imagist and sort of the period of 
obscuring images and machines and looks at um, you know, a kind of uh, ubiquitous necrophilia in his poems that when you look at the collected early poems, um, which collects his first six books, uh, about half of the poems are kind of obsessed with ghosts and corpses. Right. And that's all a symptom of, of his sort of involvement in decadence and late um, 19th century aestheticism. And um, so I sort of track that forward through into the cantos and, and try to track the ways in which um, certain kinds of pitch that are associated with Orientalism, uh, with um, medievalism, right. the two primary kind of territories, which, um, how they persist in pounds. Um, uh, in the cantos, uh, and also the, the ways in which his idea of the persona, of the personae poem, so the, the persona itself or translation, right. which are really intimately related, how they end up being a way for him of smuggling into the cantos long after he's ostensibly left that early sort of decadence behind. It's a way of sort of smuggling into the cantos certain kinds of diction, that is to say, smuggling in through translation, under the aegis of translation, certain kind of archaic and, and um, sort of, um, you know, pre-modernist, uh, you know, uh, stuff that he just can't bear to get rid of. Sure. So it's, it's about it's about a way of, of enriching of, of talking about how um, ballad uh, poetry is something that persists in pound and how its relationship to popular culture yeah. and, and trying to open up ways of reading the cantos are less um, you know constrained by certain kinds of modernist paradigms or frameworks. Yeah, you follow that thread <clears throat> further into the 20th century with. New data and kitsch. Can you talk about how kitsch expressed itself in the New York school? Um, well, um, let's see. Um, you know, there was, um, a, um, an interest in, um, Counterfeit poetry and stealing poetry, Ted Barrick and um, especially with a, a number of other figures who, um, including Ashbury and the most sort of visible dominant um, figure of this, who, you know, for whom um, borrowing and stealing and um, mimicking other poets is really essential mm -hmm. to practice. Um, and so I wanted to try to organize that, uh, or, or I wanted to try to see that through. A different kind of lens rather than seeing it as a kind of an extension of modernism, trying to see it as an extension of a different kind of modernism that, that involves Kitsch. Uh, so, um, I mean, it, all of this is in the book. I'm sort of just rehearsing here. Uh, no, of course, yeah. Are much, are much better said, uh, much better said in the book. <laughs> no, you're just. Uh, uh, is um, great. Tell me a little bit about the process of just writing the book and putting it together. My dog is going crazy in the background. It's crazy. <laughs> but um, um, well, how'd you uh, sort of catch on to this, uh, the topic of pitch and diction in particular? And how did this uh, book slowly come about? Like, 
how do you literally like physically put this book together? Do they start out as kind of independent essays and they just sort of cohere? Um, you know, it really the, the impulse for it really grew out of. Um, I mean, in, in part, you know, I mean, the, the, the critical book before it was called Infinite Poetics, and it's a book about obscurity, poetic obscurity, um, in relation to certain kinds of vernacular um, poetry, and you know, and, and my own poetry is something that is really embedded in. Uh, you know, in a, in a preoccupation with, with different registers of diction, um, with, you know, a kind of Florifian, uh, you know, playing and sampling and orchestrating and tuning of certain kinds of different registers of diction. So, you know, I, I, I had, um, you know, published, oh, well, I mean, 2010, 2010, I published a couple of books of poetry, but, um, bravado with action books and, and, um, uh, the dandelion clock, um, with Tim, Tim Fish. And, and both of those books, um, are, emerge out of a kind of method that has to do with orchestrating different, um, uh, different registers of diction and different sources that I'm sampling. So the, the Kitsch book, you know, I identify that the, the problem of diction as, as the essential feature of what, what, what I, what, what marks poetic kitsch, what, what makes kitchen poetry distinctive as opposed to um, other things that might link it to kitsch in visual or material culture. Um, no. So the way that you can tell, the, what's distinctive about poetic kitsch is its diction, um, it, you know, ranging from various kinds of poeticism, I mean, archaism, to language that we think is prototypically poetic. And, um, so the, the impulse, the attention, the diction really came out of it. You know, my work as a poet. Right. And I wanted to I wanted to ask you, sorry to interrupt, but I was thinking about the essay that you published in Boston Review and the vigorous response to it. Uh, can you talk about uh, your feelings about that essay and, and the response to it? Um, yeah, I mean, I... I mean, as often happens with, with my critical books, it seems like there's an essay, something that that I write immediately following it, which seems to get it right before the book gets it over on <laughs> a kind of coda that I keep, I think, you know, if only I had, you know, I'd be able to you know, see this or think through this or right. somehow, but, you know, but the essay was really, you know, it, 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 I mean, there was, a, there was an element in the book that, that, you know, grounds the problem of pitch and class conflict and right. pitch, the diction of pitch. Uh, is something that situates itself um, in certain kind of conflict, conflicts between elite and vernacular poetries. Um, so I make that point, and I, you know, I, I, I mention it in certain ways in, in my Silver Planet, but I didn't really engage with it, you know, in a very polemical way. I, I didn't really ground it in certain kinds of um, sociological or Marxist sort of theory about class. Sure. So I decided I was going to do that, and I, I wanted to do a piece that that really outlined, formulated the, the sort of class, the, the context of class and, and, and the problem of class theory in, in the contemporary world and, and in the context of Occupy and the whole, all the, you know, the memes about inequality and the, the meme of, you know, the 1% and then the 99%, which right. is class identities and class, class conflict. So, so um, you know, I wrote this essay that put Kitsch 
in that context in in more directly and polemically in the context of class conflict. Um, and I, you know, I knew it was polemical, but <laughs> I I didn't you know I didn't realize that um, you know that I was I, I saw it in some ways politic let's say politically and poetically as on the one hand being you know, engaged in certain kinds of issues that friends and 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 people that I read in in terms of uh, contemporary Marxist work, um, you know, whether it's the Oakland community, the you know, the British community of Marxists. Um, so I saw it as as engaging in their um, in in dialogues that I right. am reading on the, on the political side of it, on the, on the sort of poetic side of it, I saw it as something that was a way of speaking to the politics of Flarf and 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 trying to talk about Flarf, which is something that interests me, and I admire a lot of poets that, that you know, that, that do that kind of work. Um, and, you know, what I found was, um, because in some ways I'm not part of either of those communities, I mean, my work is in my own way involved or engaged in that, but but I'm not I, I'm not really sort of part of much of any community, including those two communities. And I found that I it that I I it felt like I had really stepped on people's toes, you know, that I had in ways that I hadn't anticipated. Um, you know, and that there were a lot of um reactions and antagonisms uh, about the piece. Um, especially from those two quarters, um, I felt. Uh, and and those were precise, and that the, the the conflicts were, you know, ironically in relation to the the parties that I felt most closest to and most engaged with. Right. So it, you know, it was it was a difficult you know, process after that. Well, I think it, it created a useful conversation, for sure. And I want to thank you, Daniel, for joining me today to talk about your book. Um, thank you for joining New Books and Poetry. Oh, good. Well, it's been a pleasure. I hope it hasn't been just a uh, kind of echoing what's in that book, but uh, anyway, thank you. I appreciate your interest. Thanks, Daniel.